Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Happy New Year. We hope you had a great festive break, binged on some brilliant television, and are all fired up for plenty more in 2024. In today's episode, Left Bank Pictures' Andy Harries reflects on the final season of The Crown and how the series helped his company ride the streaming boom. Bad Wolf's Jane Tranter on her cautious outlook for 2024, an expansion of the Hooniverse. And a litany of industry luminaries debate the impact of artificial intelligence in the coming year and beyond. Golden Globes take place in the US this Sunday, and among the contenders for best TV drama series is the sixth and final instalment of The Crown, with the show making history as the first to have each of its seasons nominated in the category. The Netflix saga about the British royal family from writer Peter Morgan has already scored countless awards over its 10-year run, sweeping the boards at the Emmys, and its success has charted the trajectory of the streaming era, a standard bearer for the boom and concluding as industry contraction bites. Andy Harries, chief executive and co-founder of Sony Pictures television-owned producer Left Bank Pictures, spoke to me about the journey the company's been on as a result of the series, how the firm's navigating declining budgets and where the business is headed in 2024. Left Bank Pictures is uh, a pretty successful production company, I guess. We have been doing The Crown for the last 10 years, uh, amongst uh, many other drama shows. We only really do drama. There's about 40 of us and uh, we're based in Leicester Square. And what we like is quality shows, quality drama, ideally ones that travel the globe. Uh, that's always been interested in scale and, uh, you know, strong, strong British subjects are always of interest, but, you know, whatever, whatever feels interesting, I guess. Obviously, The Crown has been a defining series for your company. It came to an end in 2023. Just tell us about, you know, your feelings about finishing that, that series and, you know, what, it, what it's meant for the business. The Crown has been the mainstay of Left Bank Pictures for the last 10 years, there's, there's no doubt about it. It's been an extraordinary project to be a part of, an extraordinary team um, working on it, uh, and, and, you know, really a privilege to be a part of a show that has made such an impact not just in the UK, but also around the world. Um, 60 hours of television, quality television, um, mostly all written by Peter Morgan, which I think is pretty extraordinary. You know, what we, what we, we have achieved, what we set out to do, which, which is what are one of the most, I think, rewarding aspects of, of where we've got to. You know, 10 years ago, Peter had a vision for a show. It would be for 60 hours of television across spanning the, the, the life of the monarchy. Um, uh, with a change of cast every two seasons. It was an incredibly bold idea. I didn't think we would, I, well, I believe, I thought we, I hoped we would sell it. It was, it was my job to sell it, so I had to believe we would sell it. I wasn't sure we would sell it, uh, uh, but we did. And thankfully, Netflix were there. The last meeting we took uh, uh, in, in a week in LA. Um, we were the right show for the right time with the right company, for sure. And, and, if any company has enjoyed peak TV, uh, it, it, we are one of them. You talk about peak TV, that series in particular, well, it was the Netflix's first original in the UK. Over that 10-year period, the market has changed tremendously, and it's that pace of change has accelerated over the past year, the past 18 months. We've seen streaming almost come full circle, and, and from, a, from a great boom period, there's now a contraction. How has the last year been in the business? How have you seen it change? Yeah, the last few years have been very, very challenging for all of us, haven't they? I mean, it's with COVID and, and then, the, then the strikes and, and, and the, the global problems that have led to what is clearly a recession. I mean, you know, there's no getting around that. And that's impacting on, on all of us. And uh, we're, we're no exception to that. Uh, in television terms, budgets are declining, commissions are declining, <coughs> conservatism rules. And, you know, to survive um, and make money is, is going to be is challenging. There's no question about it. You've got to be nimble. You've got to be very efficient. You've got to think. Uh, you've got to think. It's really difficult because, you know, everybody wants entertainment at the moment because when times are tough, they, everybody wants entertaining television. But you've got to, to, but entertaining television is, is, is quite tricky. So you've got to, you've got, it's partly about changing the mindset of, 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 of many, of the writers actually a little bit and, and even our, our own team, readjusting them to, to think uh, about the sort of ideas that people really want to watch, which is obvious really, but, but actually 
you'd be amazed how many ideas uh, are, are, are sort of developed, which just are not really what people want at the moment. So it's, it's difficult. You have to kind of navigate the, 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 the cultural and social changes carefully and quickly. You're a company that's benefited from the big budgets that were you know, bandied about, those budgets have, have contracted and, and, and come down. So, you know, as a company that's, that likes to do big, ambitious, um, you know, international series, how are you adjusting and adapting to this sort of straightened times, I suppose? Well, the budgets, um, the budgets have definitely come down. But I think we, but there are still big budgets to be had. I think what is interesting is there is a polarisation in the market. There is the kind of, certainly in the UK, there is the kind of two million, two million pounds to two and a half tops kind of show, which is primarily a basic terrestrial television drama, <coughs> BBC, ITV, etc. Um, these are the sort of shows that will, will have a licence fee on the UK, have some money from overseas. Uh, and probably sell reasonably well, depending on what they are, uh, and a tax break. But 2 million, 2.2, 2.4, that sort of show, I think those can be made with, with, you know, they're not easy to make, but they can be made. Then I think there's a bit of a problem, there's a bit of a gap, because getting money for the sort of 3 to 4 to 5 million pound show is hard if you're not with a streamer, or you've not got some, you know, a really good sort of co-pro situation uh, in North America. So the answer for us, obviously, is to have a balance between the two. So we are still pushing hard to get good, good, good shows, uh, good budgeted shows from streamers. We have a couple uh, new ones, so I'm, I'm relatively relaxed about that. And we continue to sharpen our skills in what I would call low-budget drama. It doesn't need to be bad drama. I think it's, you can still make it incredibly well, but you just have to be realistic. You know, that means just making sure that the, the money's really on the screen and that you know, you, this is, these will be shows that don't have huge special effects. They're probably not abroad, or if they're abroad, they're fairly contained anyway. So, you know, I, it's an interesting challenge. I mean, you know, all of life is up and down, isn't it? You know, we, I started Left Bank in 2007, which was in the middle of, uh, you know, the worst recession since the current one, actually. Uh, and, we, and we got up on our feet and, and did fine. So I think it's challenging the next 12 months, very challenging. But I think uh, focused, being focused, being strong and... Um, being nimble, I think, are, are, the, are the sort of attributes you need to, to, to stay in business. Tell us about some of the shows that you have got in development and, and you know, to the extent that you can, the ones that have been commissioned you've got coming up. Well, uh, yes, the shows in development that I can tell you about, we, have, uh, we are doing a big series for um, Netflix called Department Q, which uh, the American director, Scott Frank, has, been, has developed with us and he's directing the first two hours. Um, Matthew Good. Uh, is in the lead, and um, it's based on a bunch of books uh, uh, from Denmark, actually, uh, that were made many, many, many years ago, but uh, this is a complete uh, reimagination of them, and we've set the series in, in Edinburgh, and the first book uh, in the series uh, lasts eight hours. So that's for Netflix. So it's really exciting. It's, I think it's going to be great, actually. So that's a, that's a good budget. It's not, it's not crown-style budget, but it's not... Two million quid either, so so that's that's it's a very you know it's our flag it's our, it's our flagship show for this year. Another one that we're, has been written about, which is uh, in heavy development at the moment, is uh, the TV series The Girl from the Dragon Tattoo. So it's a, again a reimagination of the books, the original books, a new take. An American writer called Venus Sud is writing it for us, uh, and this is for Amazon. So again, it's a it's a it's a big it's a big budget, not. You know, not again, not crap. I mean, I mean, not sort of ten million dollars, but but uh, north of five. You know, so somewhere between five and ten million, I think, is the sort of range that streamers are comfortable with now. So those are the two big shows for this year, and then we have a number of smaller, smaller shows which we're working, we're doing with ITV and BBC. Um, there's one show we're just finishing off, which is called Insomnia, which is for Paramount Plus. Uh, this is Vicky McClure, who's absolutely fantastic in the lead role, actually. Uh, we finished shooting just before Christmas, uh, editing it now. I'm not quite sure what it would be on Paramount+, Plus, but it should be by the back end of, of this year, 24. Um, yeah, you know, again, it's, it, 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 this is in the range of the budget I was talking about, the sort of 2 to 2.5. So it's all shot in the UK, uh, 12 days, uh, an hour. 
focused, tight, terrific director, uh, Icelandic director, called Borga Sigurdsson. And, um, you know, I'm really pleased with that, actually. I, I think, you know, you can make really good show, shows at this budget if, if you've got the right team. If you're properly focused, you've got all the scripts before you go in, you've got a great cast. Everyone raises their game. It's, it's, it's interesting. And what about, you know, Left Bank, the future for Left Bank? I believe that... Um Last year, 2023, Sony bought out the remaining stake in the company that they didn't have already. So you're 100% owned now. Um, so what are your sort of, you know, what, what's the future for, for Left Bank? What does 2024, yeah. you know, what are your priorities beyond the programming that you've just talked about? So Left Bank has been completely bought out now by Sony. <coughs> I'm a corporate man, uh, owned, <laughs> completely owned. By Sony, uh, it, it's. I mean, I hope the culture won't change with the company. We're, we're trying to fight to keep us independent. Um, um, I think the, the game plan for the company remains the same, which is always to uh, develop ambitious drama uh, that makes a difference and makes an impact. Um, and um, you know, I think I think Sony is quite. It's an interesting company because it has two or three companies like I mean, Eleven and, and and Jane Tranter's company, Bad Wolf. So with three big production companies in, in the UK, you feel that they are, they've got a kind of strength of purpose um, and, uh, and um, that the distribution are committed to um, you know, helping UK shows get made and get, get around the world. So yeah, so far so good, still there. What about um, challenges and opportunities for the industry in 2024? You've touched on some of these things already. Well, the challenges with 24, I, I think, will just remain uh, as ever, is just trying to find those sharp ideas that you can cut through. You know, commissioners will be conservative. Um, and you've got to kind of keep convincing them that to, to take a chance on some stuff. You know, yes, entertaining stuff, yes, feel-good stuff, all that kind of stuff. But... You know, nevertheless, the stuff that will break through will be somehow come from the side, I think. You know, it never comes from the, from the mainstream. The, sh the shows that really do always do well are the ones that pop up which is when people least expect them. Um, and, um, yeah, we're doing another series, actually. One of the things we're doing is, uh, I should mention, is we had a big hit in 2023 with this uh, drama, Who is Erin Carter? And Netflix are keen for us to develop it into an anthology series. So it's a who is, a recurring mystery. Every, whatever it is, year, 18 months, we come up with another who is. Who is, who is Amanda Blake is the new one. And uh, you'll have to wait, obviously, a little while to find out who Amanda Blake is. But it's, it's, a, it's a great idea, actually, because we, it uh, was a huge success in the summer. Um, and I think that Jack Lothian's writing just found a, you know, a perfect pitch for uh, the mood of the moment. Can you give us some predictions for the next five years? Well, I think the, uh, the obvious predictions for the next five years is probably that there's going to be more consolidation. I, I do think that there will be consolidation in the UK sector. There are probably far too many companies. Some people will retreat back to their kitchen tables, I guess. Other companies, such as small to middle-sized companies, might have to find uh, uh, an ability to merge with other companies or do partnerships with bigger companies. I think bigger companies will get the lion's share of the work, not just because I think they've got the kind of experience and the status um, and the programming sort of catalogue, but also because commissioners don't really want to take big risks with companies that don't appear to have uh, all, 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 the, all the skills necessary that, 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 that they, to reassure them. I mean, it's tough. It's not really very fair. But um, I do think, yeah, more mergers, um, more acquisitions. Do you think about AI at all? Has it sort of, you know, is it something that you use, you know, as a company? And, you know, how do you think it's going to transform the business? I think, uh, do you know, I haven't read too much. AI is a very interesting area. Uh, obviously, much of the strike was about AI and, and, and how it could or impact on producers using it rather than writers. Um, I haven't had a direct uh, experience with AI, if I was honest. I'm sure I will. I don't quite know how it will impact on, the, on, on our business. Uh, it may be five or ten years, I may well be putting my feet up in a, an exotic location by then. Bad Wolf is the Sony Pictures television-owned UK production company behind series including A Discovery of Witches, His Dark Materials, Industry and I Hate Susie. 
It's also behind Russell T Davies' latest incarnation of Doctor Who, the longest-running sci-fi series in the world, due to hit Disney Plus later this year. Bad Wolf chief executive and co-founder Jane Tranter spoke to me about why, despite 2023 being a bumper year for the business, she's much more cautious about 2024, with the ripple effects of the pandemic and US strikes yet to be truly felt. She also talked more about Doctor Who's recent 60th anniversary specials and Kuti Gatwa taking on the title role and plans for expansion of the Hooniverse, as well as what else Bad Wolf is working on. So Bad Wolf is an independent production company that is located in Wales. We also have an office in London. We started Bad Wolf in order to make drama set in Wales, but to be broadcast internationally all around the globe. And between 2015 and 2023, we've largely done exactly that. 2023 was a bumper year for Bad Wolf. We had, I think it's five things in production. We made The Winter King for ITVX and MGM+. We've made Red Eye for ITV and are currently looking for um, US and global sales. We made Industry season three for HBO. We made Doctor Who, uh, the relaunch, Russell T. Davis's relaunch of Doctor Who. And we started filming on Dope Girls, a new piece for the BBC. So it was a big year. Um, a bumper year for you, but across the industry, how did you see the business change in 2023? There was a lot of change. There was a lot of contraction. There were strikes happening in, in the US, which uh, you know, had a ripple effect across the industry, whether you were stateside or not, and you, you are. What were some of the, the, the things that happened you know, on an industry level that, that kind of changed things for you in 2023? So 2023 was a bumper year for us in that we had a lot of shows in production. But the shows that we had in production in 2023 were obviously commissioned earlier than that. They were commissioned in 2022. I think what we're looking at now in 2024 is we're really beginning to feel the pinch of the strikes. I think that the damage that the industry sustained during the pandemic, which was temporarily sort of healed, if you like, and, and we had an immediate boom time as soon as the pandemic finished, and then we went into two strikes. And I think the themes of, of the pandemic and those two strikes are really only now beginning to be felt. I feel that there is a lot of caution from broadcasters in taking on new stuff, in part because they are working out what are the things they put on hold, they're still gonna be paying for, um, how many of those are actually gonna go forward. And I think 2024 will be a year when a lot of things that were put on pause during 2023 will go into production. And I, my sense is that there won't be a huge amount of new stuff going into production in 2024. We will, certainly at Bad Wolf, will be looking at continuing things that we know we already had set up. So, for example, Doctor Who Season 2 um, is filming at the moment in 2024. But new stuff, I'm not so sure about yet. We're still waiting to see on that. Obviously, the, the contraction that we've seen taking place across the business has been partly caused by the strikes. It's also been partly caused by the sort of contraction that we've seen as a result of the the Netflix inflection, I think, that, that happened about 18 months ago when they really sort of shock subscriber numbers. The studios have been putting billions and billions into to streaming and they're now kind of focusing uh, on, on profitability and, and, and sort of reining in that spending in a major way against the backdrop of the economy and everything else, the, the, the sort of global macroeconomic situation. But um, amongst all of that, you, you know, you've got a big deal away with Disney, with, with Doctor Who. So is that a story of, for fewer bigger properties with the streamers, the right properties, the recognisable IP. Just unpick that, that Disney deal for Doctor Who amongst all of the things that I've just spoken about. If you can, sorry, yeah. there was a lot okay. to throw at you. No, 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 that's good. I'm gonna come back to the Disney piece because um, the Disney piece was done pre-strike. Mm. So obviously, you know, as we face 2024, there is a general tightening of belts everywhere. And that is, 
because of so many changes that are happening in our television landscape that were going to happen anyway, and things that perhaps have been exacerbated or accelerated because of the impact of the strikes. So there certainly seems that there will be less opportunities moving forward. However, I think we've got to remember that the number of opportunities we had boomed. So it's not as if we are, oh my goodness, the television industry is crashing. I kind of feel that what we're looking at in 2024 is more perhaps what would be normal when everything wasn't, give us everything, there's so many opportunities, which, which this sort of boom that we had after the pandemic. I think that where, so I don't feel that that is an enormous change necessarily. I think the big change was that there was like so many chances um, 18 months ago. I think the biggest change is going to be on budgets. And the thing I keep hearing again and again is, okay, we like it, but can you do it for less? And obviously there's always been a bit of that in our industry. You, you never go in and someone goes, we really like it, can you make it for more? You know, that is never gonna happen. But I do think that there is a huge tightening of belt over budgets. And, and a whilst Netflix are certainly reducing the amount of stuff they do, the thing that they constantly talk about looking for are things which can be done on smaller budgets. Bring it back to, um, to, to Doctor Who and uh, to that Disney deal. Amongst all of that, a really significant deal, which you say predates the contraction that we have seen, but uh, a very significant and interesting deal nonetheless. And it's 60th anniversary of Doctor Who as well. We've got a new, uh, a new Doctor taking up the role. So just, just dig into that show a little bit more, if you would, and, and the deal. So when Russell T. Davis said he would go back to Doctor Who, he put down certain things that he said, OK, if I'm coming back to Doctor Who, I need this to happen. One was he wanted to be able to make it on a budget level, which at least had some chance of competing with other huge franchise shows in that area. And to be clear, the budget level that we have for our current Doctor Who is nowhere near at the kind of Loki and or all of those, like all the massive Marvel franchises, it's nowhere near that. But it is an increase. It, it, it makes the brand feel that it has more possibility of competing internationally against those kind of shows. Uh, he wanted the brackets taken off it internationally. He felt that there was a massive load of Doctor Who viewers who had not yet been exposed to Doctor Who and that he wanted to find a way of doing that. And he wanted Julie Gardner and myself, Bad Wolf, to make the show with him. So BBC and BBC Studios came to us and said, all right, you know, would you make this show with us? Could you help us find an international partner for the show that would do all the things that Russell was asking for? And so we worked closely with the BBC and BBC Studios to talk to various possible partners of which Disney Plus was absolutely standout. I mean, who better to launch a family sci-fi piece for the 2023-2024 than, than Disney? And they've been a brilliant partners so far. You've talked about reaching new audience, you've talked about sort of raising the production standards perhaps of Doctor Who and, and particularly with the star that you, you have on board who will already be familiar to many people through through uh, Netflix and, and previous work. But you've also got the, the huge Doctor Who archive as well. I don't know what all the complications are around that, but w what does it mean for the for the property and, you know, and how does it kind of you know, get elevated from there? Well, Russell's vision was to come back, not just to make Doctor Who the television show, but to actually develop the Hooniverse. And in developing the Hooniverse, clearly the thing right at the centre of that is, all right, who will be our next Doctor? So um, Russell uh, had the idea of bringing David Tennant, who played the 10th Doctor, back as the 14th Doctor. Um, and that is part of the whole, I'm not gonna give spoilers for those who have not seen all our specials yet, but um, there is, he has a whole storyline as to why the 14th Doctor came back and therefore why we have the 15th Doctor, which is Shooter Gatwa. And Shooter Gatwa is, as far as the Disney Plus audience is concerned, that is, that's their like 
okay, season one. So we had to do this strange thing that for UK audiences and for the worldwide fans, what we were doing is celebrating the 60th anniversary, continuum with David Tennant and then change with the whole new look of the show and the 15th Doctor with Shuti Gatwar. So it's been a complicated thing in celebrating and loving the whole history and legacy of Doctor Who, while at the same time Russell developed the Hooniverse to ensure that you could be someone who's not really even heard of it, or maybe you've heard of it and thought it wasn't for you. But what were all the things that audience would need alongside of just the new television series that we're making to really give them an immersive and deep understanding of Doctor Who. So Russell was insistent that we develop the back catalogue, that the BBC put all of that into one place. So it would be available if people watch for the first time and they think that's interesting. So this show is the longest running sci-fi show in the world. And then they can go into the back catalogue and see what the canon is, see how the show has developed. Um, and we also were doing the Doctor Who Unleashed, the behind the scenes shows. We've done little pieces, Tales from the TARDIS. We're gradually building up a whole world that surrounds the main show. We could dig more into that, but uh, it wouldn't be fair to we'll give you a chance hours, <laughs> to, yeah. to talk a little bit more about yeah. your other programs. You're a big yeah. fan of the trilogy, so, uh, we've spoken about before. Um, you, you referenced the Warlord. Chronicles as well. Um, these things are often quite big budget productions. You've referenced the fact that perhaps smaller budgets are available. Uh, is your appetite for, for trilogies so strong now? And can you, you know, just talk about the Warlord Chronicles and perhaps some of the other stuff that you do? Well, I love a book adaptation. Um, it's no secret that Bad Wolf has built itself on two great trilogies with the discovery of witches and his dark materials. And now we're just embarking on The Winter King which is an adaptation of Bernard Cornwell's The Warlord Chronicles, which is a trilogy. Um, and there is something very satisfying, I think, to be able to take those big pieces of IP where some wonderful novelist has worked out what would take you kind of six years in a writer's room um, to work out if you were doing it as an original piece. And I love doing that. Um, and we will continue to look to balance Bad Wolf's development and production portfolio with a mix of things which are adaptations and um, often quite big budget because if you are adapting a book you can't decide okay well no one's going to go to the north or no one will go to battle or no one will go to the ball or whatever it might be whereas if you're doing an original piece you can balance your production budget and just say okay to be clear there will be no going to the north everyone will go to next door there will be no ball, there's a small party, you know, and it's just in the village hall opposite, kind of, you can balance it all out. So we are looking, and particularly as we move forward into 2024 and some of the restrictions that there are on, on budgets, we are looking to balance out some of the higher end pieces of drama we do with some smaller, more local pieces. Doesn't mean to say they won't still have international and global appeal, but they will perhaps be made um, not in deep period or not in a world which is like but unlike our own, but perhaps in a world which is entirely ours and is most definitely in Wales and, and tell pieces that can be as much fun and heightened as some of the others, but in a more containable way. You talked about the fact that, um, you know, something which might take a writer's room six months or I can't remember the period you, you referenced to, to develop six years, six I think years. it was. Uh, AI has obviously been a key talking point in 2023 at the heart of the writer's strike as well. You talk about sci-fi, Doctor Who. <laughs> to what extent is, is kind of AI either a concern for you or an opportunity? Is it something you're using in your own business? You know, what, what are your thoughts on it and, and, I don't know, concerns perhaps about its use in the future? I think AI's got to be an opportunity, but I think it's like any opportunity, it's got to be used in the right way. I'm not remotely interested in an AI's writing capacity, and I'm not remotely interested in AI's replacing our great actors in some way, uh, but I am interested in, in it in a tool that perhaps will help us develop better visual effects, or in the case of Dope Girls, for example, um, we are using a lot of volume 
um, stage work to recreate Trafalgar Square. And we are looking at a couple of other projects, which we are also heavily using a volume wall, um, in some cases a whole volume stage. And AI can be very useful in terms of helping us develop some of the images for that. So I'm, 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 it's not that I'm cautious with AI, but I'm slow with AI. And it's like anything. I think that you only choose it to be additive. You don't choose it to replace something, unless that something is so dull and boring and easily replaceable that that would be a better way to replace it. But writers and actors are neither dull nor boring, and nor are they replaceable. So I'm not interested in AI in that level. We've talked a lot about 2024, but you know, I don't know, is there a particular kind of concern or a particular opportunity, something you're particularly excited about, you know, as far as the industry is concerned, not just your company, looking ahead to 24, if it's not artificial intelligence, for example? I think 2024 is potentially going to be quite tough. I think it's going to be a transition year. I think it's that transitional period between, as I've spoken about, the kind of boom of production life with all the streamers coming in and that almost false boom that we had in production post the pandemic and into perhaps a, a new normal. I think that there will be a change coming, won't be forever, but I think there will be a change in the co-production market. Um, I think as the world faces uncertainty, we've got you know, elections coming up on both sides of the Atlantic. I think it makes people more cautious sometimes about the type of material they want to work on. I think it potentially will make the Americans look to really only want to do American material and the Brits therefore only do British-based material uh, because that's all they can afford. Um, so I think it will bring, 2024 will be a transitional period as we begin to change into what our new television normal looks like. I think the only way to deal with change is to embrace it. I think we have to look for the positive in change, whether we feel positively about it or not. And so what we're looking to do in Bad Wolf is we're looking again at what's our, been our development strategy. You know, we need to balance out those really, really big franchise pieces that we've had with things which are more achievable and look for what the creative challenge and pleasures will be from doing that. AI was denoted Word of the Year by Collins Dictionary for 2023 and came to define the past 12 months as OpenAI's ChatGPT saw mass market adoption and the share price of associated chip maker NVIDIA similarly soar. Concerns over the technology were at the heart of the US writers and actors' strikes and C21's Content London, where leading players within the space came together to discuss how it will change the TV business through 2024 and beyond. Vertigo Films co-founder Alan Niblo, allied global marketing chief strategy officer Adam Cunningham, Harbottle and Lewis partner Emma Wright and digital consultant Dan Taylor-Watt spoke with David Jenkinson about the many complex issues that will transform the industry in the years ahead. Let's just go across the panel and just define what singularity is and, how, and, what, and why it may be important or may not. Right, so I think, hello, my name is Adam. Um, I think very simply put, I'd be curious if there's other definitions of it, I think we can look at ACI, which is artificial collective intelligence, which is the idea of humans plus machine, one plus one might equal three, so the usage of AI for great work. And then we have AGI, which is artificial uh, general intelligence, which is the ability for the AI to perform at the level or surpass the level of human work. So I think that's really the question of at what moment have we or have we not hit um, AGI, and we were speculating about it backstage with some recent stuff. But yeah, that's how I would look at it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the technological singularity was, I think it was coined by Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the greatest futuristic predictors, you know, and he, I think he predicted 2044 as the moment that a synthetic brain will be able to map every single neuron and synapse in a computer. And at that moment, you know, we would reach true AGI. You know, and at that moment is the technological singularity. And from then on in, it's incredibly uh, self-learning and, and 
it can, uh, the exponential growth is so, beyond, in fact, beyond our imaginations, which is terrifying. <laughs> Emma, do you have a view on singularity and how where it sits in our future? I, I always have a view. Uh, <laughs> so um, I just kind of caution about some of the predictions because uh, as someone who's kind of worked in the tech industry for 25 years, it's built, it's built on hype. And I sat in a meeting in about 2012 where I was told by a well-meaning uh, automobile association that autonomous vehicles would all be on the road by 2020. So I do think there's an expectation and it may not deliver. AI has been around an awfully long time. And sometimes when we talk about these things, the reality is, is that the reality and the expectation do not match and will not match for a very long time. Sure. I mean, it has been around for a long time, but it hasn't been in the sort of uh, public domain. And do you think that there's any sort of exponential growth that goes like this? Or is is, is there a ceiling of, well, machines are just not going to ever take over, so don't worry about it? The thinking is, um, speaking to one of the founders of one of the big LLMs privately, was that actually there'll be a a lot of growth for the next couple of years, but then the cost of building the next version, this is obviously his, his view, of course, it's a his. Um, that, <laughs> that, that then it will be that actually the investment that's needed, uh, the compute power, the energy will mean that other decisions will kick in, whether it's kind of from the Pentagon. And I, I don't know when. I just want to add on to that. One thing that's really important that's being said, I think, if we take a step back for a second, AI has been around for a very long time. If you've used Google, you understand how it works. So what we're really talking about and why we're talking about it now is because an LLM, a large language model based ChatGPT specifically, has a really great UI or UX, a user interface that makes it really easy for people to talk to the AI. We built an AI system for Disney 15 years, 12, 13 years ago. So none of this is new. We're talking about it now because there's just a it's coming in a visual format that is accessible to people. And so I think it's really as part of the hype cycle, to your point, to take a step back and say, it's not like something got invented in the past nine months and we're all freaking out about it. Because, sure. But if you, know, you could have had a language that was spoken by a few people for centuries, but if everyone starts talking, everyone starts using that language, it suddenly becomes ubiquitous. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's I'm more the on the optimistic side of things. But. Okay. Dan, yeah. what's your thoughts? <laughs> So I, I tend to, the definition of the singularity I go to is the when's machines' ability to improve themselves is not something that we can keep up with. And my view is that no one knows if and when that will happen, and the scientific community totally doesn't agree. Uh, there's people at right end of the, each end of the spectrum on that. So I think I, I remember back in my... BBC days going on some training about the uh, from a management point of view about the circle of influence and it's very much outside my circle of influence so I think that the (laughs) it's um, in terms of where we direct our energy I think to uh, lobby and to vote for for governments who are going to take regulation of AI seriously and deal with some of the near-term issues whilst there's still some super smart people worrying about if and when the singularity might arrive but I think it's probably not the best use of our energy. No. So we've started in the world of Asimov, coming back down <laughs> to the ship to Earth. Um, Emma, you, you, you um, work on the front line of sort of the legal and legislative part of, of what happens in the real world with regard to AI. How do you feel about that at the moment? What sort of cases are the defining cases or thoughts on, on the front line of protection, copyright, law, you know, uh, are, are, are the important ones that everyone should be aware of? So I think, you know, it's not a surprise that how, a, how governments can keep up with tech, technological developments is inc- incredibly difficult. And because the technological de- developments are even faster than they were 20, 20 years ago, we've we found wanting all over the place in AI. And governments are taking different approaches. Authoritarian regimes, such as China, have had far far more success at regulating it than anyone else. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Um, And I do think there is a real copyright issue, which, you know, both on how these tools have been created and the inputs they've used, whether there's been breach there, um, and then kind of the output and whether you can rely on the output and whether that's infringing. And it also sort of depends on the tool that you're using. Well, it does depend on the tool you're using in the middle and the rights that, and the, the kind of obligations, et cetera, that's, that, that govern the terms of use. 
it then also depends on the jurisdiction of where it went in and where it's coming out. So it's, it's really, really complex. I think the thing that really concerns me is there is a total imbalance of power from the companies that have created these LLMs and those that are trying to show that their rights have been breached. Because this argument that actually we haven't done anything to infringe anything, but we then can't tell you how it works because that's our proprietary information, is kind of a glass ball that you can't... How do you chip into it? Mm. And I think that... And, I, you know, we're at risk of losing some critical creativity unless we, we figure that out. And that will have to be done on a jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction jurisdiction basis or, of course, in the EU, they'll tackle it. And how similar is that to the issues that plague the sort of, or still are important in the formats business in the traditional television market? Because there were many test cases back in the day, weren't there, where you just change something and it's all okay. Does that rule apply here? When you think about these companies are essentially the equivalent of a country... It's totally different imbalance of power. That's my view. Which we're talking about people not being prepared to tackle some of these country as these companies because they're the equivalent of, you know, GDP of Denmark or whatever. So is it solvable or not? It's got to, we've got to have some guidance from governments. We we the positions have got to be taken. I, I that's my view. Um, I think we've got a discussion around whether it hinders innovation. Uh, I, you know, I publicly said that I believe that actually both investors and startups and everyone involved in the AI ecosystem need some actually some regulatory certainty. Everyone would benefit from that. Um, this idea we just let rip and see what happens, I don't agree with. Okay, thank you for that. We'll come back to some of that later. Alan, um, uh, founder of Vertigo Films, one of the most respected production companies in, in, in the UK, if not beyond those boundaries. Um, how are you um, integrating AI uh, as a concept or as a practical application into your development process? And what, what's your view of the future about how you'll change going forward? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I um, look at, try to see what... The, <laughs> The longer-term future is, and how you know how it impacts me. And one of the things that, that really struck me about it was uh, the democratize, the full democratization of the film and television business. You know, uh, the barriers to entry for me were large getting into film and television from where I come from. You know, and then going back to the, one of the most inspiring interviews with me was Hearts of Darkness, the making the apocalypse now, when Francis Coppola back in the day said 300 uh, people behind them, helicopters, 50 cameras, one day I'll be able to do this on a small camera and distribute it worldwide, you know? And that, that moment, it was unbelievable at the time that that could happen, you know? And then digital cameras came along and then self-distribution, you know? So the next evolution along from that is, for me, will be, you know, and it's not that long in my, my opinion, from what I can see, a kid on a laptop uh, making Lord of the Rings, you know, at the same quality. Yeah. You know, I don't think that's that far off, you yeah. know, so, I mean, some people would disagree with that, obviously, but it, it's interesting. When, when, what does that mean, you know, when you're fully democratising, all barriers are down, you know, what does it mean? And it comes at a time when the commercial structure of the entertainment television business is changing alongside that. Yeah, the gatekeepers are sort of not as powerful perhaps yeah. as they used to be and the commercial models are more fragmented. So are we at a game-changing moment? Is that, yeah. are we going to lose the dinosaurs or, or yeah. you know, is it a comet that's about to hit the world? Or are we really just overdoing it? Mm. What do you think? It's really difficult because I think some questions like um, human, humans will never be replaced by AI. I just don't know how you can make such comments, you know, when you, you know, 200 years ago, a cliche, but it's true, you know, how could you ever imagine a rocket going at 17,500 miles to the moon? You know, how? Mm. You know, just imagine that thought. It's not, it's much, much bigger leap than being now and seeing, you know, Lord of the Rings made on a laptop. You know, it's very, very uh, small leap compared to that, I think, you know. And then you've got the bigger questions, the fundamental, what is consciousness? You know, why, you know, it, it's beyond my, yeah, exactly, it's beyond, yeah. you know, how does God why, why, is, why, is it, why is it prejudice, uh, carbon matter and not silicon, yeah. you know, there's lots of questions around that. What's you your, your view of that, Adam, in terms of where we're at right now and how important AI is to arrive at this point in time in terms of the whole sort of creative ecosystem? Look, I think, I think AI will, if we take a step back from simply a kind of a myopic AI view, 
in our industry itself, we've been going through existential crisis after existential crisis, questions of monetization, questions of distribution, question of, questions of celebrity versus influencer, questions of format, a TikTok screen versus a Netflix series. I think AI accelerates quite a bit. And I think the key word you said there, which is very important, is democratization. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think it's hype. I think, you know, when I overhear people say, oh, you know, God, this is going to be really scary in the future, I think, oh, you've already missed it because it's, it's, it's now, not, you know, the, the word that I would focus on more than any just strict AI, because again, it's actually a, a big term. I'd focus on things like GANs, which are the generative adversarial networks, which are the same things that power deep fakes in politics all the way to the same things that will power our ability to type in five sentences, which I did last week with the studio and produce the opening scene of a movie to prove to them that we could do it now and this wasn't a technology a year from now. So I think it's not hype. I think it's all very important. I think the most important question, which is a different conference, is the one that Emma's bringing up, which is the question of governance. And I think we've seen so far that everyone is very unclear at least in the Western world, to understand how to do that. And I think that's terrifying. So that's you, terrifying. You, and that comes at a time when you just can't trust governance, yeah? Well, I mean, this is a shock. Uh, okay, so, 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 I don't the, know. The political, I'm not sure. so well, so the political, the political. We we drive cars that are proved to be on the road. We do, but we drive cars under rules created by governments. Yeah, and I suppose that the rules of government have changed since what's happened in the states and the UK, the rise of populism, the change in perhaps trust. Of, of, of establishments, and this was trust, we were talking about the erosion of trust exactly through right. fake, is yeah. not just co about content, it's about the world, yeah? And do we really trust governments to legislate for this anymore? Yes. Um, <laughs> big well, question. <laughs> yes, anything question? No. <laughs> Quick anecdote. You know, I've worked in media my entire career on the tech side, of course, but I find even with the strikes as of late was a bit of an exercise in let's try to put the genie back in the bottle. And I think one of the best examples of that was if you, and you can find this now, this isn't me creating this, you find people that found the strike language about AI, did video where they copied and pasted that language and put it into ChatGPT and said, I work at X Studio, how do I work around this? And the AI just generates an answer. And that's the perfect example for me of governance that we think about. Okay, well, let's add another sentence. You can't do it this way. Okay, thanks, AI, how do I get around that? And I think that is a nice way to illustrate the yeah. mechanic that we are seeing is that without proper governance, yeah. this whole idea that we have to self-report, that AI companies now have to self-report, it's, well, that's never bitten us in the wrong way in the financial well, industry. Dan, what, what's your view on this? <laughs> well, I wanted to ask Emma a question, which I guess is what, what your hope is for international regulation around this? Oh, like, it's, yeah. it's, a small, it's a small question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is that just a, not going to happen? or Because it seems like everything so far has been non-binding and... So at this point, I declare I work with UNESCO on the implementation of the recommendation on, on um, AI and ethics, which 193 countries signed. Uh, and uh, I've sat on a panel with the UK civil servant who said, I'm working on international agreements that we can reach. And I was like, but you've signed one. What, what's, what's happened? So I think we have got some of the frameworks. I do think there's a concern around whether if certain countries follow it, then it in some way restricts their tech ecosystem, their startups, their scale-ups, all the businesses they're trying to protect, while others are stealing a march and actually um, not following the governance and the recommendation, you know, and growing a thriving AI, and then the two come to compete. What was really interesting was last month I was speaking um, to ministers in South America None of them were interested in the AI Safety Summit. Their plan is, is to, to um, kind of collaborate with the Caribbean and create their own LLMs, et cetera. So I do think we risk our Western view being, oh, it's all about the Bletchley AI Safety, AI Safety Summit and this is all too difficult, when actually there are other parts of the world that, that aren't necessarily that interested. And we were talking earlier, and I think there's a massive battlefield around the the figure changes, but the two billion that are currently not online, and what that means, because how that will then suddenly change the capabilities for the, with the data that's being generated, but you know, and what that means, and actually, if we end up just creating more and more of the AI that we're already creating, we end up with this really homogenised view of things, and things are lost. 
Well, and, and, and sorry, just to add on one thing, what I find difficult is the conversation about AI strictly as this ethereal thing in the internet that has no physical components attached yeah. to it. So I think yeah. that's an important to go to the internet and such up. And this is, so like my, my background is not actually in, in, in IP, my background is in telco which was one of the heavily regulated industries that were obviously trying, you know, that then moved, were heavily regulated and they've struggled to move from pipes to digital. Um, but it always amazes me that we talk about these wonderful things that might happen with AI, but actually we're really talking about some like fiber optic cable or some that, that's had a very long supply chain or a bit of copper because that's how the ones and zeros will be transmitted. Exactly right. And that and and I think when we talk about the tremendous potential, we have to remember that as well. And actually there's so much investment that needs to be made on some of the very basics for us even to reach that full potential and to and to really get kind of to, to I suppose harness the capacity of the creativity that the people in the world can can you know produce. I think that the, the reason that this community, the content community, is so fascinated by AI is, first of all, it's very fresh for everybody. None of us know lots about it. Secondly, it's going to change everything, although we don't know how. And thirdly, people have stopped trusting things. Yeah. You know, cognitively, um, you know, the media is the message. The internet changed the way that people interacted with things and even were... were, were People, they cha it changed us as people. This has got the potential to change us as people more. And what's lost along the way is trust in anything. At a moment when trust is the most important thing that you could possibly need right now mm. in the world. So isn't it like just like the robots have it because we fucked it up? Sure. Yeah. 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 Thanks everybody for coming. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's that. Thank you. I think a, is there any questions from There's the audience? There's a brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what's going on. Yes. <laughs> There's a brilliant expression: uh, the, the inf an, in, an infinite, an infinite amount of content, right? Yeah. yeah available sure. very soon. <laughs> There's a question here, lady. Had a hand up there. Hi, thanks for that. And uh, David, you just said it. Most of us in the room don't know very much about this. Um, so what I'm interested in, if anybody is willing, is to um, help us understand where uh, the gaps were in the, in the negotiations uh, with SAG-AFTRA mo uh, most recently. Look, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a bit circuitous about it and be annoying about it, but if anybody's later, I'll tell you how I really feel. Um, look, I think that I would go back to governance. SAG-AFTRA, unfortunately, had um, I think what was important to solve in those strikes was the question of monetization, because I think the entertainment industry chased the music industry into streaming, and ironically, Spotify was raising its hands the whole time saying, we can't make money, we can't make money, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then we all said, oh, this is great, we should do streaming too, this is a great idea. And at the same time that they're losing billions of dollars, the talent's sitting there saying, hey, by the way, we're getting screwed. And that was a really important conversation that was very important that that got resolved from a talent standpoint and the writers and all the rest of it. So I'm really happy with that. What I didn't love was kind of the treatment of AI through it, throughout it because I don't think that wasn't the reason everybody kicked off. They kicked off because they weren't making money and they were getting screwed by the streamers and that's very real. The SAG-AFTRA situation was not in a world where there was any proper governance on any level to understand the technology. So it made everybody look a little silly too along the way because it felt a little bit like my concern, candidly, is for the 20 years I've been in the industry, we're constantly fighting off the tech industry eating our lunch in this room. That's all we're doing. We're constantly fighting for Amazon and Apple and Google not to eat our lunch. And a lot of that strike resolution felt like, congratulations, we have just handed another portion of our lunch over to them. Because the whole time while we're fighting about how exactly we can do this and that, what the format has to be, and da 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 I don't think TikTok really cares. And I think they're like, delightful, that sounds great. You guys can't do that? Cool put you over here, you know, when you have Gen Z, largest audience coming forth, large share of wallet, has a higher propensity for content than any other audience before in the, but has a completely different association and interest in the format where it looks different, sounds different, different stars, influencers, all that kind of stuff. I walked away and I was just like, oh my God, we're so precious. But isn't that to Alan's it? point, it's like the democratization of content yeah. creation is like, like what's wrong with taking these walls down now? It's, isn't it totally just time? Hollywood's the, the content industry. The battle, the bat, they want a battle, but the war is long <laughs> over. Yeah. And uh, you know, my belief, like I said from the start, it won't be that long before uh, you know, it will unleash, you know, so much. And, I, and I'm, I'm very optimistic as well, because I'm absolutely fascinated about 
what creatively can come from the next step. And, you know, will my kid be able to make a movie? Yeah. You know, that, that, I find that absolutely fascinating. You know, getting into, you know, because if you look at the, the traditionally tip film and TV, it was like, you know, the, the, again, the barriers, technological barriers were massive, you know. Uh, then there was class barriers and, you know, to get, to get in. And every time you strip that away, you know, and now you go to just the purity of ideas, you know. Like, I want to see a movie from my seven-year-old daughter's point of view. That might be possible, <laughs> right? Which has been impossible previously, you know. Yeah. Do you think that's exciting? Yeah, it's very exciting. Isn't, mm. is, there a, is there an intersection between the technology, the influencers who are not perhaps as articulate as the content business would dis define them, storytellers, and this community of people who know how to tell stories to come together in a, in a different way going forward? Do you think, Dan, what, what do you think? Is there, a, is there a, 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 a confluence that could spawn a new sort of uh, set of, sort of content? Mm. Yeah, I think that the something that I've been thinking about quite a lot is the. It feels like uh, after decades, I think it's decades of talking about digital literacy, we've got a bit of a challenge about AI literacy, and that there's quite an uneven distribution of knowledge about it and how to get the best out of it. And it feels like the. I'm sort of encouraged that there are uh, various different industries and sectors are leaning into it more. It felt like the education sector went into defense mode of like, how do we stop people from cheating, at, which, which was, you know, a head in the sand moment. So it feels like the, there, there is an opportunity. And at this stage, um, ha having those conversations in this kind of forum feels like the the right thing to be doing. Yeah, Emma, what, what's your view on the writer's strike settlement and the, and the AI's position within that? And what, you th what, what lessons can be learned, do you think? I agree about this, just stop it. This is kind of, I think I used that there's an avalanche coming and we might have put like a bit of a few sticks and a thing, but, but that's where we are on it. Um, absolutely, the democratization, that, that's just how what every industry that's been platformed kind of had a platform applied to it has, has had to suffer and it's turning the commercial models on the head on on its head I do think there's an interesting piece coming through on on competition law sorry to mention the l word but um, <laughs> around what innovation means and whether that means actually open access to the inputs for people to be able to innovate and if you think about how uh, with AI you know the LLMs sit within the hands of a few that may actually spark some interesting ideas, approaches, etc., and and help fight the avalanche. Has anyone got uh, any more questions in them? I'm just yeah. uh, curious, um, uh, Alan. You mentioned about your son or something being able to have a lower barrier to entry to make a movie, but I think the bigger thing will be to monetize the movie he makes. So I wonder about like the role blockchain plays converging, sort of with with the AI tools and what, what you all think about that world colliding. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and it's all, you know, the, the, the main question that arises from that is how distribution of your content, how does it, how do you get it noticed in the vast amount of noise that's out there? You know, so if you've created something that you, you like, I mean, again, my, my first film, the barriers to entry in the film business was, there was four distrib five distributors, mm -hmm. and if they guys didn't like it, you were dead. You know, that was your film collapsed. That was, that was over. Now, obviously, you can go viral and be noticed right away, yeah, but you still might not monetize it. You know, how do you help, how will AI help the monetization of that content? I think in many ways, actually, you know, from uh, finding the audiences to uh, PayPal platforms for, you know, to, to, decent, to get ready every single middleman possible. So is, you know? is, is, is AI the great hope for blockchain? Yeah, so I think it's important that we understand AI is not the only thing that's important right now. And I think a question that's really important that you're bringing up is really the question about centralization versus decentralization and a centralized future. So if we look at what Apple and Epic are fighting at in courts, not to bring up the L word, in California right now, it's really about the question of Web 3.0 and whether or not that can be centralized and siloed within an ecosystem or that can be decentralized, meaning I can watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it on any device. An analogous point might be you, your ability on an Android phone to access the Apple App Store, download that thing, and on your device. So the question of AI being an exponential or accelerating technology at the same time that 
blockchain if we divorce it from the terrible press it's gotten so far with Board 8 Yacht Club and FTX and DeFi and all those things? Yes, because the idea is that at some point, what decentralized or Web 3.0 or blockchain is giving us is the ability to transact online. So Netflix having, you having a, a subscription to Netflix is one thing and that's fine because that's the world we live in, but your ability to, let's say you don't necessarily have a subscription, but you want to watch an episode or two of Stranger Things, your ability to give Netflix the money earned for what you've watched, that exists in a Web 3.0 decentralized world theoretically. So AI being a component alongside, yes. Hello, um, my name's Kate. I'm from Australia where we have a lot of Indigenous communities in really remote locations. Um, in Emma, you talked about uh, the homogenisation of content. Mm -hmm. Do you think that as people start to rely more and more on artificial intelligence that there is a, a potential loss of information from the world? Yes, I do, just to, if you... Well, so... It, you think about how the AI works, kind of with uh, generative AI, it's actually spotting words and that where it's relative to other words. And the AI-generated content is going to feed that and it's going to feed the probability monster even more and make it seem even more probable that the word that appears with cat mm -hmm. because it'll just feed it and feed it. So the outliers, which were already an outlier, get pushed further to, to the edges. Now, that's assuming that they're online. That's assuming that the content's even there, it's being scanned, it's being built into the model. But I think it'll be, it'll be pushed out more and more. They, I've, um, there's a really interesting concern with the National Archives in the States as well around a lot of the imagery being uh, around African-Americans being deeply based within colonialism and lots of prejudice. And actually, we've already started kind of feeding those machines to generate to, to, to generate the images, and so that will get ever more perpetuated. Um, you on my kind of X account, I put my image into uh, an AI scanner in 2019. I'm sure the text improved a lot, and it predicted your career, and it said I was an air hostess, and I have nothing against air hostesses, but. <laughs> That's where I am on that. And then last year, uh, I asked Google to present me an image of uh, a maths pr professor. And funnily enough, nobody looked like me. And what was really interesting as well was the pictures of the, the male uh, maths professors had really complex equations behind them on the blackboard. But the, the kind of female professors, when you scan the screens, they had like three plus three. So we're already there with it, right? Yes. I think what there are a couple of things that terrify me that, that those image, Im, images are being pushed out and are feeding the future generations, but that's where we are with, the, with kind of the, the, the marginalised communities. Is it worth, because every single thing I want to underline in bold, is it worth mentioning people like Stability AI and what their viewpoint is on whether or not you think, A, first of all, you have to define Stability AI, yeah. and B, whether or not you think that that solves that, because there's people thinking about that very question. The global south. Could you just yeah. explain what that means? Well, so there are people, there are images, so there are people that are trying to, or companies trying to improve their kind of input to improve their output. But this also then comes back to um, the, the imagery that's on the web. So that fundamentally, if we haven't got these people connected to the internet, they will never be an input. Right, that that that's just what happens. I prefer some of the stuff that's going on. I know Adobe really made an effort, and particularly with their content auth authenticity initiative as well, around engaging on on imagery. In a but you know, it it's the the A in uh, Nagger is not Adobe. So we are where we are on it. Did you want to go into anything else? Well, because I know someone from Australia is back there. To use a, maybe a regional Australian example regarding stability AI with Vanuatu, right? So we've got a country that, similar to the Maldives, is about to be gone with climate change and the rest of it. And one of their initiatives they've come out with is essentially the ability to have the Vanuatu culture continue on in terms of AI and the rest of it. And that requires essentially a closed ecosystem. And this is something that a company named Stability AI is going through, that idea that they could sell a piece of software to Vanuatu or Australia or the United Kingdom, whatever it might be, so that you may engage with your government from an AI standpoint. But that would require it to sit on 
PII, essentially important data, private data, private citizen data, private government data, and be able to generate information in a protected environment. So that was the initial part of uh -huh. Civility AI. And it's, it's heavily optimistic because at the short answer, if anybody comes up here and says, this is what's gonna happen or this is not what's gonna happen, you should absolutely not listen to them mm -hmm. because none of us know, we're all reacting in real time. But Stability AI isn't interesting for extra homework if you Google that there. That's an interesting exercise in trying to put some parameters around it. So just wrapping it up, we're coming into the last few minutes now. Um, Dan, you raised in our sort of prep calls about you know, the things that you thought were important to discuss. And you know the chat, and one of the things that you took, that you mentioned was the challenge around being transparent about the use of AI in creative work. And I think we've almost had the sort of kite mark conversation, or the, the human kite mark sort of stamp. Where do we go with that going forward? I'd be interested to wrap up with everyone's view on this as we come to the end of the session. Yeah, so I think on that specifically, I feel like a lot of media companies have been making statements about their AI principles and transparency is always one of them in terms of use of AI. I think that that's going to get increasingly difficult to do as AI becomes woven throughout the production process in a hundred tiny ways. You're not going to put a big interstitial on screen to say this coffee cup in the background with a logo on was airbrushed out. Um, so I think that the, that conversation has to shift more to rather than AI as an input, then what are the outcomes? What, how is the use of AI potentially going to have problematic outcomes for the end user and using that as the prism rather than the fact it uses AI? Because I just think that's, think that's going to go away as a helpful label. Do you think people will seek out content not made by AI? No. I mean, Can I ask a question? Uh, Do you yes. think we'll end up tagging what's not been generated by AI as a more helpful guide? It's like this, this, is real. this is real. It's like an AOC oh, tag. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, I think, I think to revise my answer to your previous question, I think that the, I think there is and will remain a huge appetite for um, authored content for, you know, we are, we're wired to be interested in other people and what they create and whilst the ratio of what content is produced by machines or with the help of machines and what's more human authored will change, I would be very surprised. I think we'll go through a, a hump when everyone will get very excited about AI influencers, which just seems to be happening now. But I think we will come down the other side of that a bit, which is ultimately they are less interesting than real people yeah. discuss. Emma? What was the question? I can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy focused on whether we'd have a tag was, on this, Are we going to like have a label which is like, well, this is not made by AI, so it's more authentic, in which case I'm more engaged with so that. So I think what's going to happen with the elections will be, and whether we like realise how awful it gets, I don't, I don't know. There's some interesting thinking around as well that we, do we actually care if it's a deep fake? Is it just confirming our views of what we already hold on someone? And so actually we're just being polarised even more. Yeah. But a further um, disconnect happens in that world, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question, again, is how the public will respond to it, you know? And... Um, you know, there are always going to be people buying vinyl over digital or I'll never eat GMO food or I want organic, you know. So I think there'll definitely be a portion of the public that will be loyal to humans, <laughs> you know, as such. But, I mean, my, my, view, my overall view is that synthetic brains are coming, you know, which will give rise to a new form of consciousness, I, I believe, you know. And um, it's not that far off as well. With the, if, if quantum computing gets the breakthroughs that are predicted, you know, the... That, which is 140 million times faster than any compute, supercomputer that can exist at the moment. You know, it's it's not that we're in its it's in its very very infancy over this. You know, and in timelines, the humanity, it's such much short amount of time. You know, so uh, 50 years of time away. You know, we have to evolve into a better world. And I'm very I start my everything with optimism. Yeah, yeah, you know? sure. We have to evolve into a better world than yeah. we're in at the moment. So the most opti optimistic conclusion to reach might be that the climate emergency destroys humanity and the robots take over. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Good. Um, right. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Thanks ever so much for staying, everybody. Please, round of applause for the panel. Thank you. Alan Niblo, Adam Cunningham, Emma Wright and Dan Taylor-Watt speaking with David Jenkinson. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. 
The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.